Calling it marvellous, eh? <laughs> is that your Cockney accent? Yeah. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, we are we are covering today. We're covering the film spin-offs of Till Death Us Do Part because Gareth and I covered Till Death Us Do Part the series on the British Sitcom History Podcast recently. Mm. And so, as always, when we look at the film spin-offs, we bring Sol in uh, mm. to uh, to lend his film uh, <laughs> critical eye. <laughs> and also because you like a good uh, sitcom spin-off film, don't you, Saul? I do, yeah, I do. I, I have quite a uh, fond uh, attachment to the Till Death Us Do Part film. It was one of the first, one of the only British sitcom films that I watched in my big attempt to watch all of them that uh, wasn't mm. completely shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you just watched the first one, then? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm not sure I agree with your assessment there, but I do think they do something interesting with it. Whether or not it's shit is another question. But but this, uh, you know, rather than just sending them on holiday, they uh, they do this kind of anthology retrospective mm. type thing, don't they? It's an interesting take. Okay, well let's let's just um, get a, get a little bit of an intro here. Let's uh, pre-see what we're doing. So the series of Till Death Is Do Part started in 1965 uh, and ran for three series and then went on hiatus. And basically, it stopped. It did come back eventually, but that was never a plan. And in that time, they uh, they did a spin-off film, as the standard procedure was. And then, a few years later, they did a second spin-off film. Were both films before the series came back? Yes. Right, okay. So the first film is just after the series ended, and the second film is just before it came back. So yes, that first film was very much in that general ethos of oh, look, this is a successful TV product. Let's make a film version. People mm-hmm. will go and see it at the cinema. Yeah. And the second one seems to be very much in that later mold of sitcom films where it was a small production company who was like, oh, maybe we can make some money out of this. Let's yeah. do a sex comedy and slap a recognisable character in it. Yeah. <laughs> I, now, you've repeatedly referred to the second one as a sex comedy, and I... Uh... I really well, obviously, don't. it's disappointing. It's, on that it's, it's, it's <laughs> virtually a confessions film. It's 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 a ladder away from confessions of a window cleaner. Confessions of a scouse git. Sol, Sol do you have you ever watched any of those confessions type films? I'm afraid not. I I know of them. Um, no, well, I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but but you know the ones that I've seen, the the bits that I've seen, I think the second what was it called? The second one, the the Alf Garnet saga, isn't it? That's what the second one's called. Yes, I think yeah. it definitely falls into that category. Although, of course, you know, if our listeners haven't seen it, it uh, rest assured that it's not Alf Garnet who's having all the sex. It's uh, it's the Randy. <laughs> that would actually be funny. That's well, there's the, not. That would be a good. There's there's a bordering on sex scene, which is Alf Garnet, but everything else is kind of implicit. All oh, these two are having an affair, but I mean, I guess we'll get there later on. It's, it's... Oh, he definitely. He wakes up in bed with the woman. Yeah, right? exactly. He's obviously he wakes up in bed after shagging. The... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but sex comedies don't show any sex. What do you think this is? The I thought they Channel showed five? sex. You just 70s. saw Robin Asquith's bum hanging out of a window. <laughs> exactly. We don't see any bums in it. We don't see any bras flying off with a whistle going. Woo. That's true. There's not even a. There's not even boobs actually. Yeah, yeah right. You're right there. <laughs> well, it's, let's let's yeah. let's anyway, start we'll with the first one. Yeah. yeah. So. So as we said, the, the, we've we've dealt with this before. You know, the, the challenge of turning a, a half-hour sitcom into an hour and a half film seems to elude most uh, producers and writers. 
But uh, yeah, they they do something a little bit different here. It it doesn't really work as a ninety minute script in any way, mm. but at least it feels like they've done something. And what they've done is is set it as a prequel. Yeah. So instead of going into the mid sixties with uh, Alf Garnet and his and then his swinging son in law. Yeah, it, which... it, it is the the early, well, it's actually the 30s, just a war is about to be announced. Which makes it all the more confusing that it's the second one that's called the Alf Garnet Saga. Yeah, that, <laughs> that would have been an appropriate name make... for this first one. Yeah, completely. yeah, that second film is not a saga in any way. Yeah. I think the problem with this film is, is it starts and they're in the cinema as war is being declared, they're watching the news on the on the, on the the screen. And, and, and you think, okay, this is going to be a wartime prequel. And it sort of is, but the the way the film is broken up is into sort of ten minute chunks where something will happen, and then we sort of skip forward for a few years, mm. and then we see another scene, something else happens, and it's almost like Alf Garnet living through the last twenty years. But the problem yeah. with that is, it's just it, it feels like a set of sketches rather than a film. I, I yeah, you know, yeah, he's the yeah. thread, but but there's no there's no actual plot to follow other than Alf Garnet's awful and he's wrong about everything. <laughs> So, so the, the the dramatic tension of the sitcom is basically between Alf and his son-in-law, the Randy Scouse git. Now, because we go back in time until the last, the end of the film, the, the Randy Scouse git in there, and so yeah. <laughs> we have to we have to create that tension by in every scene there's a there's a different antagonist. So during the war, yeah. there's a there's a soldier who's occupying their street, and then it's just the random people. Brian Blessed, isn't it? Brian Blessed, mm. yeah, Brian Blessed Young plays the soldier. Brian Blessed. Um, Attractive, well, without the beard, young and without well, a beard. Yeah. A, 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 it's, it's relative. A, very, it's all relative. To <laughs> no, in the film, um, he is he is desirable. Very striking he's, he's young a sexy man, sexy soldier. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Still got a bit of a frog face, though. He? Got very piercing eyes. But but the point is, if we are saying that this, one of the strengths of the sitcom is this antagonism between those two characters, you can't remove one of those characters and expect it all to go off smoothly. <laughs> or recast them with someone and well, change the character We'll completely. get to that in the second film. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, like, Till Death Us Do Part was somewhat controversial, I think, because that, that line of how clear-cut it is that this guy is the butt of the joke perhaps got a bit blurred mm. at times and I, I think you mm. see that between these two films I, I would say the first film I never get the sense that you're really meant to be on Alf Garnet's side um, no. I think he's always presented as a prat whereas the second film again not to get too ahead of ourselves I feel like it kind of forgets that that's its mission statement mm. and it just kind of ends up casually condoning yeah. everything that he says and does by, well, by well, let's come back to that second film because I think the two films are very different but Mm. Yeah, certainly in the are. first film, the problem the problem with Alf Garnet is that he's he's completely unsympathetic. And, you know, unless you unless you agree with him, he, yes. it's not it's not you can sympathise with someone who has disagreeable views, like Graham Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. <laughs> if we are looking back, you know, it was a different time. His racist views. Now, in the 1960s, he would have been considered a bit racist. But his views were not that far out of the mainstream. And, you know, mm. a lot of people supported Enoch Powell. And so he was, you know, he was like uh, uh, close enough to the mainstream to be able to poke fun at. Whereas now, he, you know, his, his views are considered way, way too out there and, and so not mm. comic fodder. But that is not my point. My point is that even in 1965, he was a horrible man. 
That whole retrospective of the last 20 years in that film, we get no indication of any affection or love between him and his wife. No mm. no relationship yeah. between him and his daughter. He's just an, it's just a, an awful <laughs> man. And that's the fundamental problem with Till Death Has Do Part for me. I, 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 I hate him. He's horrible. Going off the first film as kind of Till Death Us Do Part virgin, essentially, like, I... I don't find him a completely reprehensible figure. I I just look at him as, oh, it's, you know, he's this poor figure of a kind of shit hand dealt to him in life. You know, people did get stuck in marriages that they weren't particularly overjoyed about back then, still do now. He's living in squalor, he doesn't know any better. I don't know, to me me it felt like watching a a kitchen sink drama from the same era, like a Ken Loach film, but it's kind of got moments of comedy in it. I got that as well. A kitchen sink drama is really Mm. uh, a good comparison to the series in general, because it is really social realism and this is supposed to be mm. a little snapshot realism and i think that is partly its strength but also a problem because <laughs> it means you're creating a very realistic protagonist here in alf garnet who is a, an unpleasant person mm. and that's the problem is an unpleasant person that like oh god i know that a guy like that yeah and you know it's like the person who when you're in the pub and you see him hanging out of the bar on his own because everybody hates him yeah and why would i want to spend 90 minutes in the cinema with him you know he is regularly humiliated so in the in the film. I mean, you know, basically every yeah. scene starts with him mouthing off about something, and then ends with some authority figure proving him wrong and humiliating him. And then we freeze frame yeah. and move to the next sequence. But there's no consequence of that. He's humiliated, and then he goes home and shouts at his wife. Yeah, I mean, again, in in this first film, I I never felt like it felt like he and his wife were kind of bickering, but it it didn't feel like either one of them was particularly nastier to the other one than each mm. other do you know what i mean it just felt like it's this couple that are sick of each other well alan made the point in our when we were talking about that i think this is you correct me if i'm wrong here alan but this is explicitly said in the series he considers himself a good husband because he doesn't hit his wife and in 1965 that's probably true unfortunately yeah, you know, that's that, she could expect. Yeah, which is a, which is a damning indictment, really. But again, that's that's where context changes. That was fifty years ago, and you know, mm. I, I think I think it's reasonable to expect a husband to, to have a higher standard of uh, mm. than, than that. You know, that's what I mean. Where its strength is its weakness. I think this is a very realistic character. Yeah. I, I think if you went to a wedding in working class London in the sixties, yeah, a pretty good chance the dad would be out of his face and yeah. would then throw up on someone's dress you know like that's not Amazing. i think that's totally believable but i think i would hate to be there yes. <laughs> and to see that and to yeah. have to live with that person i don't think you'd have to go back to the 60s for that <laughs> well exactly solid chance though, yeah. i also hate people now as well <laughs> <laughs> I, I i i mean for me like i say it it feels like a british classic slice of life kitchen sink drama it's a, it's a british Loach. tradition to be a drunken wanker yeah and and for me this film works on that level it's just it's a slice of life but it's a bit more palatable than a lot of those other grim realistic films because ultimately this plays it relatively light-hearted and you know tries to get some laughs in there and well let, let me let me just clarify actually because we've we've ended up getting to this whole discussion straight away which you inevitably do with till death is due part but actually, I think Till Death of Dupart as a series and as a whole is quite good. It's mm. it's very funny at times. Uh, it, it can be very satirical. I, I prefer the earlier stuff when 
Mike is a bit more active. Um, and it, I think it sort of dilapidates as it goes along, but everything mm. does. So I'm not too worried about that. And I think this film is a pretty good example of the level of humor that you yeah. get in the series. It's just not, it doesn't work particularly well as a film. But I think there's some really interesting stuff there. So just because I don't like the character doesn't mean there's nothing here that I don't, that I like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I that's certainly my read on it. Like I say, I've only seen the first episode, but this felt kind of like the show's formula working, but just kind of put into a a medium that perhaps isn't the best fit for it because it becomes a kind of meandering, very low stakes affair. Well, I think I think what well, I think sort of Gareth was getting at this earlier. Um, you've you've got a great setup here, set in the in the forties. And they've they've obviously they they have half the film in the forties. They they've got the props. They've got yeah. the yeah. set. Like they've they've committed to that. But then what do we get out of it? Well, I think that's a big part of what I liked about it. It's um again, it plays into this slice of life thing. I for me, this works as a real time capsule of oh, this is an account of the war ultimately from people who mm. lived through it. It's only like yeah. twenty years on that they you know made this thing. And mm. to me, that is a really interesting thing to to see. And also what you're saying, they've got the sets, they've got, you know, all the production design for, for this kind of period piece. It's it's a surprisingly theatrical experience, this film. It's actually quite cinematic in how it's shot and mm. put together. It's not yeah, just I can, I can like that, most definitely. of its contemporaries. It, it, it's actually shot really nicely in ways. And yeah, you know, it's within the limits of their, their budget. But I, I was I'm always impressed. I, I'd watched this before. I watched it again for this recording, and it's like, oh, this is this is again, this is up there with your your Ken Loach movies of the era. It's yeah. Well, yeah. did you notice uh, one particular shot that jumped out at me? It's when it's being announced on the radio that Churchill is is becoming the new kind of war leader, basically the prime minister, mm. and the camera tracks in to uh, Alf Garnett's face, go, and he's in the pub playing darts it goes right up close up to his eyes so you can just see his face and then it immediately starts tracking back and he's in his house and he puts up a, a picture of churchill so one shot mm. and to be honest like relatively easily done it, the only thing you can see of the pub is a back wall so they've obviously yeah. just wheeled that out and the set is in place but you know that's something that's they're, they're trying to do something you know they yeah. and i don't think it really says anything did it feel like we were getting into alf garnett's head there not really <laughs> i think it was a style of a substance but hey at least you're doing something that's yeah, that's, yeah. he's just Use your uh, kit that you've got. And then also there was a scene in uh, using a tube station as a bomb shelter, you know, as an air raid. Mm. And that that, fe- that was a that, that felt very beautifully shot, very well recreated. Yeah. But that also felt like, okay, we're setting stuff in the 40s. People remember this. So yeah, let's yeah, yeah. put something in where people go, exactly. oh my God, I remember that. Because mm. that scene has no relevance to anything other than mm. Alf Garnett gets into a fight with someone and he's yeah, a bit of a knob. Yeah. Like it's not relevant to the story. But mm. it, I think it's just there, just to go, hey, bit of nostalgia, blitz spirit, eh? Mm. That'd be that'd be like making a film about the Tony Blair election victory now, twenty five <laughs> years. Yeah, but I'm I'm all for that. I think that's. I know most people don't experience film in this way, but a big part of what I love with film is a window into another culture. Mm. Um, I think one of the best ways to understand history, and obviously you can only do this for history going back about a hundred years, is to watch films from that era or whatever country it is that you're trying to get a yeah. glimpse into like you you get you get such an insight into attitudes and things that aren't readily 
apparent if you just read about stuff on Wikipedia or or even if you read about it in you know very well written textbooks there's something about you know consuming the art from the era so going back to what i say about this being a kind of glimpse into the war from people who lived through it i i found this a far more interesting relic of of living through the war than any like war movie that i think i've ever seen um it, it's just a very and, and I think it's like you say, it's because it's about the details in the background. It's not the mm. focus. They're not trying mm. to say something about the war. It's just kind of there, and they're just kind of portraying it. Because it was something that the, pe- the people who, had wa- who were watching this film had lived through it. It was, yeah. yeah. It, was, it, it wasn't a look at Let Us Educate You. It was Let Us Remind yeah. You. And, I, and, and this actually was educational for me when I first watched it. When I first watched it, I didn't know people were kicked out of shit homes in London and moved into Slum Essex. That's why yeah. I, yeah, I didn't know Essex was the way that it is because of that, but it, you know, <laughs> now I do. It makes sense. Well, let's 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 talk about that because we we focused on the war, but then I I I picked out that sequence. So towards the end of the film, we see them. Um, yeah, essentially they get the slums are cleared and they lose their home, their family home, and they are moved out uh, to to high rise flats. And this was the time. This was the scene where I, I felt sympathy. I felt sympathy for Garnet. He was having yeah. his, his home taken away. And yet, exactly. even then, he managed to somehow ruin his, <laughs> his wife and, and daughter and son-in-law's life by just being an absolute arsehole about it and made a bad situation worse for them. They ended up moving out without him. I, I, think, I think I find him sympathetic enough in this film because, yeah, he does have his home taken away from him and he does get a really raw deal in that. You know, he, he bought the home for uh, 15 grand, I believe it was, that he paid for it. And then they no, pay no, him no, 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 3 grand? Fifteen hundred and three hundred. Yeah. Oh, sorry, fifteen hundred. <laughs> <laughs> but but this is an interesting discussion, though, Sol, because because I think you're right, and and as I say, I felt some sympathy at that point, and objectively, you are correct. He's getting stitched up, and yet I I don't feel the same sympathy as you did because I just spent an hour thinking what a prick he was. So there's almost an element mm. of comeuppance. But um, but as I say, I I do wonder if you're letting knowledge from the rest of the show kind of yeah, quite possibly, cloud quite your possibly. opinion of him because I, I like i say this is really all i know this character from and yeah he is a prick in this film too but i don't know i i i think within the context of the film there's enough to kind of just about get away with all right he's not a great guy but you know he is having a bit of a rough time and mm. you know e- even even being stuck in this high-rise flat at the end like even then he's like all right, I know it's normal to have your kids in the late 20s living at home in the 60s, but it, it's still, like, I don't know. It, it it felt like that must have been shit. He's, he's got his daughter living with him and her boyfriend, and he hates her boyfriend, and they're in yeah. a very small, like, flat together as well. It's just, yeah. I mean, I'd get stressed out. I'd probably start not being... <laughs> quite as extreme as him but i'm sure i'm sure there'd be some little sarcastic comments coming out at the dinner table if, uh, <laughs> sure there would yeah just in terms of the plot of this first film what else happens because the the basic plot is the war story and then we have the kind of they're getting thrown out their whole house but it never really coalesces into a proper narrative it's like we say it's yeah scary. it's, it's just a it's just a meandering a slice of life look i'm a, i'm a stickler for story structure but this film is what 80 something minutes long and it's lighthearted. I I can just kind of go with all right, all right, each scene's kind of what it is. But yeah, it's definitely a weakness of the film, like it, a whole film set during the war or with a clear beginning middle end would have been preferable. 
And there, there's a lot they could have done. Like, they could have latched onto the whole Alf's been drafted and now he's got to get out of that thing, which happens in the film. But in the film, yeah, it's just no kind way. of glossed. Yeah, he, he gets it's just a letter. to show that he's a hypocritical coward. Yeah, yes. exactly. He gets a letter drafting him. Then there's one scene later on where he's like, Oh well, I you know I couldn't I couldn't go. I begged them to let me go, begged them, but they wouldn't let me. It was too important here, and it's like right, that's dealt with like that. That could be the the you know the film that that could what Jake some as actual he tries to get out of uh, out of the yeah. War. yeah, and that could get you could get some actual sympathetic emotion out of him there. It's perfectly reasonable to not want mm-hmm. to go to war and die, but then it is also quite cowardly. But then I think you know cowardice is a very understandable empathetic yeah. like emotion yeah it like, would have made know, him a lot know. more relatable yeah 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 but as we as we're dealing with the context of the time uh one of the little sketches we get is uh they go to the world cup final in 1966 oh yeah 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 and that's another another exactly what i'm on about um encapsulation of a, a moment in history from people who lived through it from yeah. very close to the time it's like an east london forest gump isn't it and yeah, that yeah. In, uh, well, that's it. Like, it obviously meant something to the chump. you know people involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it and it's a good example because they just go to the football and watch the match, and and it progresses. It's not funny. Um, it's not. It's yeah. it's just a sort of what might have happened if these people went to the the match, yeah. and then they get drunk afterwards because they won. But to me, it plays almost like it's it's the one moment in the film where Alf and uh, Mike is it the mm, kid? Yeah, yeah. It's the one moment where they kind of come together and find a bit of uh, common ground and aren't at each other's throats. And because ultimately I, they're both blokes. Yeah, yeah. So, so they, they, they that's the it. That's together. what it's speaking to, isn't it? Yeah, and they in the series basically the only time they kind of get on is when they're drinking together or when they go to the football, and even then, you know. He's a Skowski, he spots Liverpool, so they, they can have arguments about football, but that's okay. That's the whole mm. purpose of football in British society, is to allow <laughs> men to have emotions uh, about yeah. things. So, it, you know, that's the purpose it serves, and that is completely, like, here's something that people can relate to, you as an audience. Like, oh, yeah, mm. I, that's mm. all my dad ever talks about. Football. But it... it- the football comes pretty dad, much but... in the third act, and I, you know, it, it's very messy. It's not handled as well as it might be, but I think it it does kind of work to provide a degree of like closure. These characters kind of find their common ground. Like I say, it, like it does provide a little bit of structure. Now, I, I, the failing there for me is that I would like to see that between him and his daughter more than between him yeah. and his daughter's boyfriend. But I, you know, I think that probably speaks to. Um, <laughs> gender politics of uh, when this film was made and but also bear in mind that we get we get the daughter's wedding like yeah. in, in every show that is the the unemotional uh, unavailable father's yeah. re- redemption moment where he sort of sits yeah. his daughter down and says he loves her and that she's beautiful and then cries as he walks her down the aisle and and that's that we don't even get that no he <laughs> just pours a drink on her and pisses himself yeah yeah <laughs> I think Till Death Us Do Part, the film, is a kind of surprisingly sincere film. Mm. It, it's quite innovative, uh, or at least it's not It's not a lazy film. It's not... I'd say the, the vast majority of the sort of contemporary peers of this film were, you know, let's just remake three episodes with, you know, maybe a new actor, do it in colour for the cinema. Like, it, it, this is trying to do something 
Um, and yeah, it's incredibly messy. It doesn't fully work, but I, I do actually get a lot out of it. And I would go so far as to say it's probably my favorite Britcom movie from the classic era before the modern era of comedy other mm-hmm. than uh i'm gonna say i prefer porridge but that was you yeah. know t- 20 years on 10 years on um mm. that that film came out you know i i largely agree i i think it's it does it's not very well structured as a film but i think it's true to the characters as we have them in the series i think yeah you say it's it's trying to do something it's having that prequel element is interesting well i think this has been an interesting conversation to me because I, 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 you know, I didn't like it, but I think I am probably carrying a little bit of prejudice from having watched the TV program. I've try, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to assess this as a film on its own merits, which is quite difficult. I, I think mm. it's really interesting your take about if we looked at this like a kitchen sink drama. If I'd come into it thinking this was a kitchen sink drama, I would probably have enjoyed it more. Mm. But the, the, I, 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 it's a comedy, and it's not funny enough. The funny moments <laughs> don't outweigh the unpleasant moments. I also think yeah. the structure the structure I like the prequel idea but I don't like the structure. I think it just feels sketchy and a bit jumpy and that that yeah. kind of as a film that that doesn't really work for me. It's a bit little bit I'll repetitive. Um one of the the repetitive bits that I really liked about the film was Alf going to sit in the outside toilet and talking to his neighbor Bill Maynard. Yeah. That that was <laughs> yeah. a that was a really lovely touch and that felt that felt mm. like that would have been relatable to people in 1969. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Well, Bill Maynard, so he plays the neighbor Bert, and then he he went on when they brought the series back in '72. He played that same character a couple of times, yeah. and then that and then he was replaced by Alfie Bass when that character became a, a regular kind of every every episode mm-hmm. character. Uh, but yeah, Bill Maynard, Bill Maynard, who I th- I think from my age, I know him best as that bloke in Heartbeat. <laughs> he was in a sitcom called The Gaffer in the eighties, which I remember. Oh, he's in, he was in all sorts. Of, yeah, Selwyn yeah. Froggett and all, all sorts of mm. stuff. But yeah, that I think I know. But speaking of heartbeat, uh, Jeffrey Hughes uh, is is also in it. Now you see, this is this is where I'm I'm ten years older than you. Jeffrey Hughes was in Coronation Street. He was Eddie yeah. Yates in Coronation yeah. Street when I was a yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's in also. He actually he, the year after this, he was in Curry and Chips, which was written by mm-hmm. Johnny Spate. He was a regular in that, um, and he was a regular in Keeping Up Appearances. Of course, that was his sort mm-hmm. of in terms of well. sitcom is probably what he's best known as. Um, Michael Robbins plays the barman, um, both with a wig uh, in the in the forties and then without a wig in the sixties. And this was the year before. On the buses started, so he plays Arthur in On the Buses, the brother okay. in law. And in the same scene, in one of the pub scenes, Bob Grant, who is also in On the Buses, is in it as well. In, in what is basically a, a an extra role, I don't think he even speaks. Um, but he's just sort of in the back. He's just one of the blokes in the pub that Alf is. I'm, I'm looking now, and he's he's credited as man in pub. Yeah, yeah. So who, exactly. who was Bob Grant in On the Buses? Uh, Jack, he's the oh, you know, right, the, okay, the, right, the right. best mate, cheeky, chappy. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> always with the lady. Nah. And who can blame them, eh? With that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so those were the ones uh, that jumped out at me in the in the first film. I think those are the only ones. Mm. I can't remember anything else. Yeah, I mean, my head. It, I find it very interesting the the roles that you um, kind of go to for for what someone is to you. Because I'm I'm looking up these people as, as you're talking about them. Jeffrey Hughes to me is most significant for being the voice of Paul McCartney in the <laughs> yeah yeah in in animated Beatles form well uh, Yellow Submarine and yeah yeah do you see I who's... believe the cartoon I'm 
guessing. Or maybe do you see? Else in the cartoon. Yeah, yeah, as the cartoon. But do you see who the voice of Ringo Starr is on in Yellow Submarine? Uh, no. Let, let me have a look. Paul Angelis. Paul Angelis. Yeah. So he's he's the one who plays the Randy Skarsky in the next film, which we're about to talk about. Oh wow! I see. Just oh. you know, there's not that many people with a Scouse accent in the sixties. You know, you can't, you just can't <laughs> spread them around too. Acting, yeah. Was that a Scouse accent? Well, yeah. that, that, that's a good that's a good way for us to lead into the second film, I think, isn't it? Well, to lead in, what happened was the sh- the series had finished in sixty seven. They did the film in sixty eight, and then nothing. Uh, well, actually, they did do a special in nineteen seventy for the election. But then I think there was no intention to make any more of the series. So why not mm. sell your characters up the river? Uh, and then, <laughs> you know, the the second film came out in seventy two, and it was late seventy two that the new the 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 kind of revival of the series happened but it wasn't anticipated the series had finished it was done and it, it and it came back as part of that raft at the time of the bbc going oh we don't want to show black and white stuff but we can just re- remake our old shows in color and so you know steptoe and son got revived this got revived are you being glib there or did they literally remake old scripts no uh, not really remaking old scripts but just sort of rebooted the shows and brought them back but there was a lot there was a lot of repetition there was a lot of not not a shot for shot remake but a lot of repurposing of storylines right yeah. yeah okay well if it, it, i i ask because the second film feels it has the feel of a totally different mentality behind the production and different people putting the money in basically it feels like they're going after different markets they've got different intent it it just it has the feel it has Mm. the feel of we made the first film because we had an idea and we wanted to kind of give the show something of a send-off the second one feels like someone drove a big truck of money up to the house and we couldn't say no and we just had to kind of churn some shit out to a deadline Uh, when i first watched this like, so I was watching the series and I watched these along the films along with it and I could not believe that this was written by Johnny Spate. I thought Yeah. And then it is. It, it it feels like it's been handed off to yeah, some some other writers. That, yeah. It feels yeah. like like they'd taken the intellectual property and just done something completely different with it. Yeah. yeah. Which was is not... I used the word intellectual advisedly. <laughs> yeah. Which is not out of the question, you know, that, that might happen. Oh, but that's yeah. that's not what happened. Johnny Spate not only wrote it, but he's in it. So he was definitely there. He was involved. Mm-hmm. And mm. and Warren Mitchell, uh, who plays Alf Garnett, was very closely associated with the character. And like we say, he carried on this character for 30 years, basically. And, you know, a lot of what that character is comes from him. Maybe he only read the parts of the script that he was in. Because it's really like, a lot of the Alf Garnett stuff is fairly kind of what we expect. And it's all the the Mike and Rita stuff that is just like, what's going on here? Why, why, what's happened? And obviously they haven't yeah. got the same actors, like sort of step one. Well, so this is, this is the problem with the film. The, the, firstly, we've got different actors playing Mike and Rita, but that, I'm, I'm all right with that in principle. The, the problem is that what Mike and Rita are completely different characters. They're not different actors. They're doing yeah. a completely mm. different thing in the narrative. Yeah, and it's it's not to be clear. It's not that their performance is completely different. It's the way the characters are written and behave is so yeah. utterly different. And it yeah. it completely. We spoke about the formula of the show and the setup here, and the changes they make to those two characters completely 
undermines everything that I know yeah. about till death does do part. Like mm. um before we get into this on too deep a level, should we kind of give a broad overview of what plot there is? Um Go on then. All right. So basically they're living in their high-rise flat. Yeah, in, in that sense it is a direct sequel to the first film because in the series Sol they never move out. They stay in the same house in, in Wapping uh, for the entire run. So that never happened. Oh, right. The slum clearance never happened. Huh. Interesting. It's an absolute nightmare if you're, uh, if you're trying to... Well, I, was gonna, I, I don't think people timeline. cared about... Yeah, people didn't care about what was and isn't continuity. You know, people didn't yeah, care no. about that in the 60s and 70s, did they? So yeah, they're in their high-rise flat, living together. Rita's got a job, but Mike hasn't. He's just living on the dole really like all alf doesn't really have any plot at all in this one the only sort of story comes from the mike rita plot which is that they have a bit of a fallout because mike is cheating on rita uh categorically mm, and blatantly. rita's yeah rita <laughs> sort of catches them vaguely in the act and then goes off and maybe does or doesn't sleeps with a black guy to get revenge on him and it's just kind of about that that's the point this is the mike and rita film and i guess i guess there's a decision made there to move it on to the next generation but that's not what till death is Dupart is i think mike and rita film is fine i, I don't have a problem with that I, I think the problem here to, to these characters lay it all aren't out mike there, and rita. they're not mike and rita <laughs> yeah. yeah well it's not even that it's it's the, the you know talk about reprehensible unlikable characters everyone in this film is vile they they are you know yeah we, the phrase you guys like it's a different time it was a different time but like the passive racism on show is from everyone liberal use of uh it's not very passive in the most part to be honest with you. well yeah <laughs> i was going to say liberal liberal use of um a word so kind of archaic that like it's quite jarring to hear it now yeah people don't even use it anymore not because it's racist but just it's just outdated it's just so old it's like like when i hear the n-word it's like bloody hell that's that's a strong unpleasant cutting word but Mm. the uh the c-word here not that c-word the the actually really bad one is um yeah, it's just like oh yeah, I well, it's very jarring. Gonna... It's a very jarring word to hear in a film. But God, it must be forty times, forty or fifty times they use that word. But also, it's not like if it was Alf, and you were like, oh, bloody racist Alf, I'd be like, okay, well, yeah, it's Mike. It's know, Mike who we've, who we've been led to believe is this progressive guy, and and now suddenly because his wife's cheating on him, even though he's cheating on her, he's all of his all of his principles are gone, and he's just as racist as Alf. But one thing I'm really keen to do is to take the the heat out of the words. So so we've just talked about that horrible word that they use, and that's jarring. Yeah. But if you take... So the example I always quote is, in Faulty Towers, the major uses the N-word, and that's horrible, and it's like, oh, God, you can't do that. But if you take that word away, the scene works. The scene works because it's a yeah, silly, yeah, yeah, racist yeah. old fool, and, and we're laughing at him. Now, if you take that horrible word out in in this film... It's still racist. It's still, if you don't use that word, it's still, oh my God, my wife is sleeping with a black guy. This yeah, is the exactly. worst thing that's ever happened. 
And and it's and you know, it's Kenny Lynch, the, the black guy is Kenny Lynch, who is an entertainer. He's rich. He's got a Rolls Royce, and that's all really weighted. That's all really weighted about this black guy who has got money. And the word itself is not the issue here. The racism, the racist undertones of the whole sequence yeah. is is what the problem is. And and that's not explored either, by the way. That that whole the fact that it is Kenny, it's Kenny Lynch playing himself essentially. But it's yeah. the fact that it's. It's not just a black guy. It's a very rich and successful black guy. So yeah. there the becomes a point where Alf is like, oh, look, he's in the director's box. He must be really uh, uh, West Ham. So I, I admire him. But, oh, but hang on. Uh, he is black, though, so I can't admire. Like, there's, we get a little touch of that, mm. but we don't really assess that in any way. That Does that affect the way they think that this is not just a black man, but it's a black man who is, you know, societally speaking, mm. better than them, uh, you know, or higher than them? Does that yeah. affect it? We don't know. We don't get into any of that, really. But but also, you know, like I say, we never get the sense that uh, Mike is upset about the cheating so much as it's cheating with a black man. Mm-hmm. But also, it's just a stupid plot anyway. Like, and like we say, we, we, these are not Mike and Rita, the characters that we are familiar with from the film, the other film and the series. Mike's men are be somewhat likable i think in the yeah. what i've seen of him and yeah, here he is yeah. just horrible like he's, he's got no redeeming he's, features at all he's an awful man he's a lazy like worthless you know knobhead up front which completely undermines the progressive left-wing argument throughout the show in the series it, it kind of has this sense of you know when you're when you're young and the world's ahead of you and you've got this you know strong ideology there's a sense of well look you know i'm we're going to go out and change the world and screw you granddad and mm. it, it's it completely undermines everything we've seen before to see this oh actually he's you know he's now like turning 30 close enough late 20s he's still like sleeping all day in his parents flat he's not even got any desire to like make something more of himself he's quite content to you know go collect his dole money for doing nothing and then spend it immediately what what around the corner spend it on drugs <laughs> go and cheat on his wife Gamble who's out away. working for me the big problem is that there was always affection and love between rita and mike and that was contrasted as the, the this abrasive relationship of alpha and else and and th- that's that's not just disappeared it's turned on its head I think I think the fact that it's different actors makes it more egregious. But here's a question for you: w- Would well, two questions: Would this have worked? Would this have been different if it had been Una Stubbs and Tony Booth doing the same script? And the second question is: Is that why they didn't turn up? Do you know, Alan? I don't know specifically why they said they weren't going to do it. I suspect they read the script. Yeah, but <laughs> they they came back for the later series you know that the, the yeah, they yeah. they were still prepared to do the characters but i i don't think you can underestimate how much those actors bring to the characters especially in the early yeah. days when those characters were being built how much mm. tony booth is in mike when they're going at each other and arguing it feels like two people arguing because they embody those characters so much yeah. it doesn't feel scripted also the relationship between mike and rita there's a real beautiful chemistry between Tony Booth and Eunice Stubbs, uh, that the, they do seem like they get on well with each other. They're comfortable with each other, uh, mm. rather than two actors who mm. are you know playing mm. at it. So yeah. I think that they that does bring a lot to it, and obviously that's missing. But yeah, the, these characters are so far removed. I don't know if it was an element of 
well, hey, we've got different actors, so let's try and do something different. Let's like bring something mm. different to it, and like, we'll oh, what what do people want? Crap sex comedy. Okay, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, yeah. no problem. Yeah. But it's but it's not like like you keep saying sex comedy as if you know Mike's running around pinching bums and it's you know well, light hearted even in a completely. Exactly really he, doing. He, ch- he has he sees that woman no, walking along by the canal or the river and and, and goes chasing after her. <laughs> he has an affair with one woman in a pub who is clearly happy to have a kind of no strings attached but like ongoing relationship with this married guy. Yeah, but we, we we very much get the impression that that is one of many, like, or that he would be happily go to well, someone else the next day. Like, there's not, it's not like he's just really connected with this woman and he's like considering leaving his wife. No, I know. Yeah, that's the implication, but it's it's not like a you know. It doesn't play like a sex comedy to me. It just plays like a guy. Again, it plays closer to kitchen sink drama. It's just not pleasant. It's well, what just do you a guy... need for a sex comedy? What 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 is it missing? Well, lightheartedness. Apart from boobs, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd say comedy, but like obviously this film doesn't quite do the best job in that department all round. But like like I say, like a, an attempt at comedy, a lighthearted tone. I don't feel like any of him cheating or, or no going i know what you mean actually but it has the, it has the language of a sex comedy in that we have a close-up of buttocks and then they kind of scamper off after her but yeah you're right it's not really fun like a sex comedy <laughs> has to be fun doesn't it it has to be like yeah yeah we're getting her underway we saw it's, it's actually Crumpet. quite dark yeah and, and I, I i think it would be a lot less pleasant like you to go back to what you're saying before if it was the original cast i think it would be worse i think it'd be nastier and less pleasant to see because here there's a sense of, well, it's not really them. So they're different people altogether. Mm. Just to clarify something, Tony Booth, the actor who, who plays Mike, in the 70s was in the Confessions films. He was like the, mm. he was the mate. So Robin Asquith was the main guy and he played the mate, like we have a mate in this. Mm. And he, so I'm not saying he's above it, but I think he would have had enough respect for that character to go, hang on, this is not this that is character. Not, this is not what we do, yeah. We've got this weird subplot in this film. They're up in a high-rise, and their neighbours are John Lemessurier and Patsy Byrne. Oh, yes. And this is just this... It doesn't really go anywhere, but it's just this really weird relationship where he's really controlling, and he does everything. He won't even let her go to the shops. And she's just like this infantilised woman. But I, I don't really know what the point of it was. It doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> well, I think it's... I think the idea is... Wouldn't it be funny if Alf Garnett's next door neighbor was the perfect husband and was the loveliest man in the world who like does everything for his wife and you know blah 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 blah? But well, then they take that hypothetically, but, then they, but that's not what this yeah. is. <laughs> but that's what I mean. It doesn't it, because then they take it to the extreme that she is like living a, a hellish existence because she doesn't get to do anything and he controls every little detail of their lives by doing everything. Yeah, I think and, you're, um, you're trying to find too much in that that there's not meant to be there. To be honest. I, well, no, I, I, the I, think that's, I think that's the seed of the idea. It's just not done very well. I don't I, know what else it would possibly be. I don't be. think he... I, I don't. I didn't get the impression that he was trying to do everything because he wanted to give his wife the easiest life she could possibly have. I think he was a control freak who was just like, well, no, don't do anything because you're not going to do it right. I, I need to be doing, yeah, doing, to be doing my it, way. Yeah. It's just another form of abuse, basically. This whole, this whole, this whole film is men abusing their wives in different <laughs> ways. <laughs> but that's, that's it. They're neighbors, but they that doesn't really tally either. He's a bank manager, 
Alf's a dock worker. And, and they make a big thing about him clearly being a lot better off than Alf. And it's like, right, would he also be relocated from some shithole in Essex to this high-rise flat, which is the yeah. implication here. Mm. And like the film makes it quite clear that they're like not in a particularly nice flat either like they've been you know put in yeah. a crap one and it, it... and this guy's a bank manager back when that meant something you know it's like <laughs> that was a that was the captain mannering's job you know that's the, that's yeah. the yeah. job that is respected in society so yeah. it doesn't really i don't quite know no, what right. and yeah it doesn't go anywhere other than it's just it gives us someone for alf garnet to be up against so that we can see how annoying alf garnet is basically it's... yeah but then, uh, you know how they got trapped in the lift a couple of times? Because there was a lot of power cuts in the 70s. That was the uh, timely reference there. Yeah. Well, you know, the third there was a third guy that they got trapped in the lift with. And they were playing cards mm-hmm. and discussing politics and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know who that was? Who played that, who was that? character? Uh, Go on, tell us. <laughs> no? It was John Bird. John Bird as in Bird and Fortune. Bremner Bird and Fortune. Yeah. Okay. But he's much him. younger and quite fat. And it doesn't look like him at all, but it is him, I assure you. Okay, that is interesting. (laughs) And he was just sort of up and coming in the 60s satirical scene. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't look like him. I'm looking at a picture of him now. It does not look like him at all. I can tell, (laughs) but only because you told me. Um, what else happens? There's a scene where Alf drops acid by mistake. He? <laughs> oh, he, he oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, let me let me clarify this there. So, so Mike has Mike has bought some drugs, but decided not to take them. Brought them home, and then almost gets caught. Someone walks in, so he sprinkles it on the butter. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a sugar cube. It's a sugar cube. Oh, it's a sugar cube. Okay. And so he right, hides right, right. it in the butter dish because he thinks no one's going to look at a butter dish all day. So uh, that would be a great place to hide it. So Alf puts yeah. the sugar in his tea and hilarity ensues. I see. Yeah. He takes, yeah, he takes one sip of his tea and then, as we know, acid works in a kind of, you know, three-minute time delay and then suddenly you go, and turn into, like, a bird. That felt like, that felt like a very... 1970 reference. <laughs> he, he just he just shouts some gibberish words. Everyone's like, "What?" And then, of course, um, acid, as we know, also works by kind of laying a kind of uh, VR over the top of reality, <laughs> so that, like, when you go to the pub, for example, instead of seeing all the people stood around drinking, you see a load of. Um, Jamaican fellas banging the steel drums and doing a limbo dance. We get the opportunity to see a blacked up Warren Mitchell oh, yeah, in this uh, little drug sequence. And if and if you're uh, you know if if you are a, a racist, it it kind of me it makes you quite friendly and nice. Which yeah. again, there's a seed of a good idea in there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Alf takes acid and now he's loving and nice to his wife, and he's not racist and he's getting along with black people. Yeah, that's the, the that's the only time I, I've watched a lot of Till Death Do Part recently, and that's the only time I've ever seen him kiss Alf is when he's <laughs> yeah. <with> his tits. <laughs> But but it's like the the problem is it, again it's too messy because that's a nice idea, but then it doesn't quite work if he's also jumping around on the balcony, nearly falling off outside, thinking he's a bird, and Mike yeah. has to coax him inside. They seem quite unconcerned about him <laughs> walking on the yeah, balcony. Yeah, that as well. <laughs> yeah, nearly falling off at one point. Not you know not like he's in control of walking around on the balcony. Like he's you know <laughs> nearly and the, dies. And, the, and the, the, yeah, the response to his behaviour is just like ugh. He's going off on one. <laughs> As opposed to, <laughs> oh my god, this man's having some sort of stroke. We need to get him some medical help. <laughs> so, I've never taken acid. I'm pretty sure you haven't either. 
So, uh, Gareth, <laughs> is this an accurate representation? Um, you went to a few raves in your time. <laughs> is that is this because usually with these these conversations, I'm a bit older than you. I remember this. I remember that. I'm a bit older than you. I remember taking acid. Oh yeah, <laughs> back in the seventies. I, I, I took I took acid when the the day I got my GCSE results. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> That's a pretty. It was, ve- it was very pretty big reasonable in the, uh, time to do mid nineties. Was that a celebration or that a was the early 90s. Yeah, of course it was <laughs> a celebration. But uh, my, my listen, my memory of it was it was lots of fun and I giggled lots. That's I certainly didn't start climbing up on balconies and thinking I could. You're climb. the ecstasy generation, Gareth. That's that's. Yeah, I am exactly the ecstasy generation. That's right. That's right. I ten, I'm 12 years clean and sober, but I did my time. <laughs> I did my time in the trenches. <laughs> oh my God, my mum's going to listen to this, isn't she? <laughs> oh, she's not going to like that. <laughs> uh, if, uh, if taking acid was like this, it, it'd probably be all right. I might give it a go. <laughs> make, sure you're right. make sure you're not near a balcony. That, be all right. I, I think you'd love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does anything else happen in this plot? Because like, it's very no, that's, disjointed. That's kind of it. I mean, at the very end, they go to bed and then Alf sets no, fire sets on, to the There's a whole fire thing. Yeah, to just a total nonsense at the end. Just five minutes at the end for no reason. Yeah, yeah he sets fire to the bed by smoking in bed. She she kind of gives Alf a bit of comeuppance that, you know, she sprays him down with a fire extinguisher and he gets really mad and she's clearly aiming it at him after a certain point and having fun doing it. So I suppose that there is a degree of closure for something that, there. That is rather dynamic, the level but... that the series works at as well. Like his comeuppance yeah. is like someone throws a bucket of water on him or something. You know, it's like that's yeah. what you get for being a racist. <laughs> but but even then, it's like you know, really the comeuppance there is he he gets piss all over himself. Like <laughs> you know, that's worse. For he the, grabs for the, second the uh, time chamber the pot under the yeah yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, though, talk about the filmmaking here, and and I guess I'll say, you know, whereas I said the first film was very cinematic and felt like a film, this doesn't feel that way at all. It feels just like, you know, let's just film, stick a camera in front of it and get what's on the page on camera. It feels a lot more conventionally shot and less exciting. But um, the the special effects work on that fire, he's full on sticking his hands in that fire. He's he's full on grabbing at like the chamber pot on fire and letting go of it and like, you know, singeing his hands. And and I was watching it like, oh, that's actually pretty good. You'd never get that now because it would be all CGI. Yeah, because you it was wouldn't... like, well, we can't just set the place on fire and then put the actor in it. Yeah. That'd be crazy. Well, it's, it, that's it. You you like, you like might just about, for a film with a proper budget, be able to have a little fire on the bed. <laughs> But you wouldn't have your actor getting in, like getting right in it, sticking the hands in. Health and safety gone mad. Eh? <laughs> Can't do anything these days. Oh. Well, speaking of the filmmaking, one thing that jumped out at me were the scenes with uh, Roy Kinnear, who is just like his workmate. Uh, they're they're walking and talking, and they filmed them all basically with a camera in front of them, and Joff is just tracking back as they walk forward mm. in a kind of Aaron Sorkin kind of way. But <laughs> it was um, I thought that was nice, you know. It was yeah, and it, yeah. And it you know, it just fair. let them play off each other. It was just like one long one long take, didn't break it up. I suspect it was because they didn't have time to film it all shot reverse shot. It was just like, look, we can only do one take. <laughs> then oh, we've got to get out. Maybe, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that is, of course, my uh, my favorite episode of The West Wing is um, the one where the what's he called the president and the 
Bartlett. Bradley Whitford are just yeah. walking back and forth, shouting bollocks to each other. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> bollocks. Bollocks. Um, yeah. I think Aaron Sorkin kind of dropped the ball that day. <laughs> Witty dialogue. But yeah, that, so Roy Kinnear, that is sort of reprising. Well, not reprising because I think he comes into the later series, not in the earlier series, as just a kind of workmate. He, he makes occasional appearances. And also we have Joan Sims here, who, mm. when we when we did our episode, Gareth, we didn't really talk about Joan Sims, but she plays, you know, Grandma. She plays Gran. I, I looked this up. She's three years younger than Warren Mitchell, and she's 26 years younger than <laughs> Dandy Nichols. But she, she plays Gran. But it's obviously a nice little character role that she's she's doing, and she does it in the series like quite regularly, without being a proper character. Because she's doing a real, like, no one actually talks like this. <laughs> but then she's opposite, like, an actual old woman, which just makes it all the more clear. Yeah. So you really sounded like James Acaster then. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> but yeah, so so Joan Sims plays that. It's, that's obviously, it feels a bit like when um, Spike Milligan turns up in, in Brownface. It, oh, it feels God. like this is a character she does, and they've just written it in because Let's it's a fun kind in. of a character she does. Which would work okay in a sketch that. show, but yeah. not, in a, not in a sitcom. It's, you know, it's supposed to be... I quite like it, reality. though. I quite like what she adds to the scenes, and it's sort of that next generation up. Mm. I, I do quite enjoy it. And the way she, she always dips her sandwich in a glass of gin. <laughs> I, don't, don't, <laughs> I don't know, really yeah. get what. But is that just because she hasn't got any teeth? <laughs> Yeah, I think that would have been that would have been relatable. I think I think audiences would have seen that and thought, oh yeah, another woman at the club who does that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so just just one more um, other sort of guest appearance. I want to ask you about this, Gareth, because this is a person who I kind of know, but he's a bit too out of my time to really know what he is. Uh, mm. But we have as the milkman Roy Hood. Roy oh, Hood, yeah. yes. Yes, the news headlines. See, I know Roy Hood, but the, I haven't got that thing where I can place him and go, oh, I know him from that. So, so what yeah, is he Do you know what? I, I haven't really got a smart answer for you, but I mean, I think of Roy Hood as he's been on Radio 4 forever. You know, he's, he's had various sketch shows and things on, on the radio, but he, is, he, he has appeared in countless TV shows mm. and films. He's a bit like Bernard Cribbins in a sense. You know, he's yeah. kind of one of those... Those faces that keeps coming back and you see, and, and always good value, always always great at what they do, even if they're only in for a couple of scenes. So he plays this sort of um, slightly camp milkman who, um, and this is a scene that we've seen in the series as well, where the milkman's also the bookie. Mm. So he's, mm. they're adding up all the, what she ordered, she ordered the milk and she had the eggs and you had you had a shilling on the 340 at Epsom. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, well, I really nice like little, that. Uh, and I feel like that's probably, a, yeah. you know, really taken from reality that, if you're the person who's yeah, going yeah. around the community, going to everyone's house, you're gonna you're gonna start getting your side hustle on. In so they just way. sell drugs now, milkman. Yeah, that's what they said. That's apparently that's what, that's what someone told me. Yeah, because because we got an, an advert through the door for milk deliveries, and someone told me drugs front for drugs, and I thought, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll have two liters of blue top, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the problem with this film is that it's not really sure what it's trying to be, and it's not really good at doing that. Well, it's yeah. if is it a sex comedy? Not really. And if it is, it's nowhere near as good as those confessions type films. Is it trying to be a kitchen sink drama? I hope not, because it's really failing at that. But the problem, the real problem is, it's the real problem is that it's not, it's not a till death has do part story. That's yeah. the, that's the problem. 
But yeah. okay, I'm assessing it as a film independently. I don't think it's a very good film either. Yeah, it, it feels like a first draft, doesn't it? it? That they've kind of figured out with a bit of. And I know we sort of banged on gaps. about it earlier, but but the excessive, repeated use of that racial term was yeah. It was was horrible. <laughs> I also yeah. I also oh, noticed they yeah. seem to make a point of swearing more as well. They're using the word bloody hmm. just uh, you know like as punctuation. Um, and it, yeah. and again, it just feels like oh, we're allowed to do what we want now, and oh, this, so this is what you wanted to do the whole time. Yeah. Well, thankfully, the BBC stopped you doing it. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, if you have enjoyed this episode, then do please check out our other episodes. Uh, we do, of course, have a whole double episode on Till Death Us Do Part, the series, and many other sitcoms besides. If you're really into films, then we do do these film spin-off episodes as well. We've done them on Steptoe and Son and the Inbetweeners movies already. So have a look at those if you like. And we did those in conjunction with Saul from Diminishing Returns, a film critique podcast that does specialise more in films. But we have covered sitcoms on there before, including uh, Absolutely Fabulous. We also did The Office and then we did a little special on the David Brent uh, spin-off of the office so all that sort of thing can be found on the diminishing returns feed if you just search for that name in the podcast catchers or on youtube and keep an eye on us because we will be back quite soon with our new series and the very first sitcom we will be covering will in fact have a film spin-off so i'm sure we will be having sol join us again when we look at that that opening of our next series is going to be porridge so start watching now get your research done and come along and join us for that. Thank you, bye.